0: Started. It was just science fiction, but we dreamed, we planned, we built. Though we could not see, we plunged through the dark and took that spark of a dream and put it to the test. One, nine, ignition sequence Six, five, four. Three, two, one, zero. Liftoff! We have a liftoff. We stepped out into the unknown. We didn't know. We only chose to believe. All right, brand new series. Uh, We're calling "Hard to Believe." And let's just be honest. Let's just be straightforward. There are some things that you and I believe as followers of Christ that are hard to swallow. I mean, I mean we get it when people who aren't where we are, haven't decided what we've decided, haven't believed what we believe, look at us and go, are you kidding me? I mean, really? You believe that? I mean, let, let's just be honest. A man gets swallowed by a whale, spends three days and three nights in a whale. The whale spits him up and he's still alive. That's hard, right? That's hard to believe. Uh, God is taking the children of Israel out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea, and uh, as they're there, uh, all of a sudden God just takes the water, stands it up on end, and the ground that's been underwater for thousands of years is instantly dry so that all of the Israelites can drive their chariots across. That's hard, right? That, that's a stretch. Daniel gets thrown in a lion's den and nothing happens. And guys, just be honest. Uh, there are some parts of Scripture that you and I look at, and, and truly so, and others would look at it and go, hey, that's that's a little bit rough. So here's the question. When you and I became believers, when you and I followed Christ, did we in that moment take our heads off? Did we did we sabotage our intellect and then take some blind leap of faith in trust? That really has no justification. It just, it it just has nothing but absurdity attached to it. And so what we're gonna unpack today, the hard to believe is, is the Bible and all of that it says, everything that it tells us, is it accurate? Is it truthful when it tells us that? Or is the Bible simply a book composed by some really nice people, good people, trying in their best efforts to kind of nudge you and I toward God. And and have they just written some helpful things as we go on that journey? But it's not God-inspired. It's not inerrant in its context. And here's what I want uh, as we do the journey today. Uh, If you're somebody in the room who really struggles with whether or not the Bible is accurate or true or not, I'm not going to be able to give you enough in 30 minutes, but here's what I hope to do. I hope to bother you enough in 30 minutes that you would begin to explore on your own. Because here's what I'm going to suggest to you today. There are things about the Bible that if you believe it's just simply written by some good men trying to be helpful to you and me, there are some things in the Bible that are unexplainable, such as, How in the world did those good men know ahead of time? How did they prophesy with 100% accuracy events that they had no way of knowing? How is that possible if it's not God-authored? How is it possible that these men, thousands of years before anybody figured it out, are telling you and I scientific facts that nobody at the time had any inkling of and they actually would have been laughed at for? How did they know that? Unless the God who made that scientific fact actually spoke it into them as they wrote scripture. And I'm just going to suggest to you that if you land in that moment today where you go, Hey, I just think the Bible is a good book written by some good guys. You're going to have a difficult time explaining how prophecy and science co-mingle within scripture. And these men knew something they had no business knowing. I'm hoping if you're a Christian today that you walk out of here with more confidence. You walk out of here going, man, uh, I, I'm prepared, and I feel better about Scripture. As a matter of fact, I have a new hunger for the Word of God. Okay, so here we go. Hard to believe. Is it, is it plausible to believe that the Bible is actually the inspired Word of God? How did we get the Bible? How, how did that come about? Uh, how did it get uh, penned for us? So here we go. The Bible is actually written, you ready? Over 1,500 years now here's why that's a big deal because it means that many of the people who wrote the bible never met each other they didn't have the chance to collaborate they didn't have the chance to say hey you write this part i'll write that part many of them never even lived during the same time period and stop and think about 1500 years if you had written some bible if you'd written something down when you were in junior high just think about how much you have changed your mind and changed your opinion just since then 1,500 years. Matter of fact, I, it was interesting. I have a friend uh, who was talking to a pastor the other day, and he said, hey, the book you just wrote, do you realize it absolutely contradicts the book you wrote two books ago? And he goes, yeah, I changed my mind. So stop and think about a Bible that's written over the course of 1,500 years, multiple people growing and changing in their understanding of life, and yet without contradiction, without mistake. Uh, it's written by more than 40 different authors. Uh, the authors were from all sorts of walks of life. You have kings writing the Bible. You have peasants writing the Bible. You have military leaders writing the Bible, philosophers, musicians. Think about that. Mu- musicians writing the Bible. That alone is enough to screw up the Bible. Musicians writing the Bible. Can you imagine? Oh, I don't like that chord. I mean, come on. You've got fishermen writing the Bible, you've got tax collectors writing the Bible, poets, you've got murderers writing the Bible, and you've got shepherds writing the Bible. It's written in completely different times, different social events going on. It's written during war, it's written during peace, it's written during moments of prosperity, it's written in dur- during moments of famine and destruction, Uh, It's written at some times when people were actually in prison It's written in times when there was political oppression and it's written at times when there was great political freedom It's written during times when people were actually in exile and not even in uh, their own country It's written in three different continents. Stop and think of just the cultural differences That come into play when you've got a bible that's written in three different continents. It's written in asia africa and europe It's written in three different languages hebrew aramaic and greek and then, you ready for this? Let's throw one on top of all of that. That the Bible deals with some of the most controversial topics you could ever imagine. The Bible talks about abortion. The Bible talks about homosexuality. The Bible talks about marriage. The Bible talks about divorce. It talks about adultery. And most controversial of all, it talks about obedience to parents. Okay? So, I, I mean, try think, think, about this, think about this for a second. You and I are living in a political year. Try to get two politicians from the same political party to agree on any of those topics. And yet you and I have the Bible without error. You go, wait, 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 Lynn, wait a minute. Because all my friends come to me and say, hey, wait, 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 you know, the Bible's full of mistakes. Next time one of your friends comes and says that to you, here's your response. Which mistake? Wh- which which mistake, which error, which which one is bothering you? Would you please show me? Because here's what the next answer is. Uh. Because all they're doing is parroting something they've heard somebody else say. People have been trying for thousands and thousands of years to find even one mistake in scripture. And I'm telling you, they have been unsuccessful until now. So if your friend has found one, he is the first one. So just ask him, which mistake is bothering you so much that you're struggling with the word of God? Now, here's what you and I, you and I owe a huge, deep gr- debt of gratitude to the people who preserved the Bible for you and I. They were called scribes. They literally spent their lives copying scripture. This was a big deal, and it was highly necessary. Let me tell you why. It was necessary because at the time Scripture's being written, there's only two ways that you can write scripture down. One is on papyrus, which is just a horrible, crude type of paper, which was highly expensive. The other is is that you write it on animal skins. The problem with papyrus and the problem with animal skins is that they erode. They degrade over time. So you had to constantly recopy scripture. And you had to recopy in it making sure it was accurate. Here's how the scribes did it. When they had scripture and when they had done it accurately. They put at the top of the manuscript the number of letters that were on the page. So that when the next scribe. ...began to copy that portion of scripture, he would then write down every single word, letter for letter, all the way through. When he was done, he would then count the number of letters he had written. If he was off even one letter, he knew that he must have misspelled a word. Uh, He must have added a word or omitted a word... And even though he had spent hundreds of hours copying that portion of Scripture, he would then take that portion of Scripture, he would immediately put it in the fire and burn it so that no errant copy of Scripture would even be in existence. And they did this over and over and over again so that you and I would have accurate copies of Scripture. Now, here's, here's something that's interesting. The most ancient writings outside of the Bible that we have... Uh, is the Iliad by Homer. And if you go and talk to him, they'll say, you know, we believe we have very accurate uh, transcripts of the Iliad of Homer. The Iliad of Homer talks about Helen of Troy and Achilles and Hector. It's all about the Trojan Wars. We have 643 ancient manuscripts of the Iliad. And the way you check for veracity is simply this. Uh, If you've got... 20 manuscripts and they all say the same thing. And then you have one manuscript that says something different. In other words, maybe part of the story is not there, or maybe the story gets a little bigger and a little more flowery. Immediately you discount the new one because you go, okay, it's obvious somebody messed around. Somebody added something to it because we have all these other copies that are dead on exactly the same. And so commentators will tell you, hey, we've got very accurate transcripts of the Iliad. Here's the interesting thing. The most ancient manuscript they can find is 500 years after the life of Homer. 500 years. And yet they're confident that they've got an accurate copy. You ready for scripture? You know how many ancient manuscripts we have? 5,800 The the most recent ones are not 500 years from the original writing, they're less than 100 years from the original writing, with 99.5% absolute agreement all the way across, and that 0.5% is so easy to identify, because, oh, this guy added a word, well, then that shouldn't be there, throw that one away. It is so easy, and you and I sit in a moment where we have the ability to have absolute confidence that what you and I have in front of us today is what was originally penned. It's what... God originally placed down. Now, here's the question, though. It may be accurate, but is it God-breathed? Is it God-delivered? Or is it simply the result of good guys trying to write down helpful things for you and me? I think there are two things that today... I just ought to nudge you and I, hopefully, in the right direction on this conversation. If you think it's just good guys writing good things then I think you have to wrestle with prophecy and I think you have to wrestle with science and how the Bible is able to land both those topics perfectly, okay? So let's talk about prophecy for a moment. Grab your Bibles, go with me real quick to book of Isaiah. This is going to help. Isaiah, if you're not sure where, where it is, if you take your Bible and go to the middle, uh, you're going to find this, uh, probably the book of Psalms and maybe the book of Job's. The book of Jobs isn't what you think it is. Just keep going. It's not going to help. Go to the middle. Turn to the right. You're going to find the book of Isaiah. Here's why this is a big deal. Because Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And in it, it describes the crucifixion of Christ. Critics assailed Isaiah 53 for years and years They said, look, look, this is an obvious, this is an obvious moment in which the Bible has been manipulated and fraudulent because, because, because you ready for this. It describes crucifixion and Isaiah lived 200 years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. So how could he describe crucifixion when it hasn't been invented yet? On top of that, much of what Isaiah 53 talks about our events in the life of Jesus. You could have never known unless you'd been there. And much of the theology in Isaiah chapter 53 is New Testament theology. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. So they said, look, here's the deal. It's obvious. Here's what happened. Somebody living after the time of Jesus Christ, hearing the story of his crucifixion, having watched the church develop New Testament theology, went back, wrote Isaiah 53, and slipped it in. And pretended that Isaiah wrote it. Okay? And let's read it real quick. Because you're going to understand why they went... You know, this is just impossible for someone to know before it actually happened. Here we go. It's Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Who, who has believed our message and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, talking about Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. New Testament theology. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Watch verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. How in the world, they said, how in the world would someone be describing the piercing of crucifixion when crucifixion hasn't even been invented? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Remember at the trial of Jesus, what did he do? He stood in silence. And they'd say, how how would anyone know about the trial of Jesus unless they're writing after the trial of Jesus? He did not open his mouth. Verse 8, uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What happens after Jesus died? Who takes the body of Jesus to his own grave? Nicodemus, a rich man. Though he had done no violence Nor was any deceit found in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And skeptics and critics said, see, how obvious is that? That somebody after the life of Jesus is now writing about those events and sliding it into Isaiah 53. You ready for this? You love a little Bedouin boy in 1947. In 1947, a young shepherd boy out taking care of his sheep just around the Dead Sea area. And if you've ever been there, it's just absolutely arid. it looks like Nevada after the nuclear bomb testing. It's a horrible place. But all sorts of little hills, but you want to know the wonder of a really, really dry place like that? Manuscripts last. And a little Bedouin boy, herding his sheep, one of the sheep went up the hill. He picks up a rock to throw at the sheep so the sheep will come back down the hill. The rock misses the sheep and all of a sudden he hears... And he goes, "Whoa, whoa, 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 that wasn't a sheep. He goes up the hill to investigate. He finds one of what will eventually be 11 caves filled with literally hundreds of manuscripts within those manuscripts. Anyone want to guess? Book of Isaiah. Proving that Isaiah wrote... His words, four hundred years before the death of Christ, and two hundred years before the Romans even thought of crucifixion. If God's not helping Isaiah write that, help me understand that. When Jesus is here on Earth, uh, Jesus ends up fulfilling. You ready for this? Three hundred and fifty-three prophecies. How's that possible? Three hundred fifty. How, how many of you know of a guy named Nostradamus? Okay, all right. So, Nostradamus, everyone's making a big deal. Man, how could this guy write what he wrote? He seems to have written some about Hitler and Germany and all that stuff. And how does he do that? Anybody know the success rate, the accuracy rate of Nostradamus, this guy everybody's getting freaked out about? Anybody know? Nine percent. Nine percent. Guys, hear that? I'm thinking if I put my mind to it, I could almost get to nine percent. I'm I'm sitting behind a car the other day, and I'm going, dude, that guy's going to hurt somebody. Somewhere in his lifetime, you think I'm not going to be right about that? (laughs) Right? Nine percent. And they're all freaked. They're going, man, how could anyone guess this nine percent? Because it's going to be right. So that means, think about this. If that's true, if nine percent's a big deal, then what if the Bible was 90 percent accurate? That'd be ten times better than the guy we're getting all freaked out about. You want to hear something remarkable? The Bible holds itself to an even higher standard than that. The Bible holds itself to a standard of 100% accuracy. Matter of fact, here's what the Bible says. If somebody claims to prophesy, if someone claims to tell the future, and they miss one thing, they get one thing wrong, take them outside the city and stone them to death. When's the next time you want to tell somebody, God told me? One thing wrong, you stone them to death because here's what Scripture says. Because if they get one thing wrong, they're not from God. 100% accuracy required. 353 prophecies in the life of Jesus fulfilled. There's a mathematician by the name of Stoner. He said, you know, you got to be able to calculate this. What are the odds that somebody could fulfill those prophecies? Here was the problem he got. Some of the prophecies don't work mathematically, such as, how do, you, how do you mathematically decide the virgin birth? I don't know. I mean, one in the... I what number would that be. But he was able to get nine different prophecies about Jesus that worked mathematically, such as, born in Bethlehem. Because all you do then is say, okay, in the history of the world... What percentage of people have ever been born in the town of Bethlehem? Because scripture clearly said before Jesus was ever born, he'd be born in Bethlehem. What's the percentage of that prophecy coming true? Stoner was able to identify eight prophecies out of 353. Eight that he could mathematically calculate. Anybody want to guess what the number was he came up with? Is the odds that any one man would be able to fulfill the prophecies of Jesus? One to ten to the 17th power. Got any mathematicians in the room? Okay. This is not going to be helpful then. Okay, so let me just say this. Let me just say this. That is a big number. It's a crazy... It's 10 with 17 zeros. And maybe this... Are you ready for this? Even if you take an evolutionist' most generous dating of when they believe that humankind first appeared on the earth. So you go back hundreds of thousands of years and take the population. The earth has not had enough people yet. For that to happen one time by accident. And yet Jesus fulfilled not only those eight, but 345 more. If you think the Bible was written by good men, trying to be helpful, explain to me 100% accuracy and prophecy. If it's not God, whispering in their ears as they write. See, I'm going to suggest to you that there's only one author of the Bible. There just happen to be 40 transcribers. Okay, so you don't like prophecy. So let's talk science for a second. How is it possible that the Bible knows scientific truth thousands of years before the scientists figure it out? How's that possible if it's just good religious men trying to write down some religious writings? So let me give you a couple examples. Okay, now th- here's what I need you need to do: you realize the United States has been in existence for about 250 years. Stop and think about the scientific progress that has happened since the inception of the United States. I mean, think about think about George Washington and an iPhone seven. I'm just saying. These, are, these guys don't even have electricity. These guys are with kerosene lamps. They're going outside to an outhouse to use the restroom. The fastest form of transportation is a horse. That's just the scientific movement in the last 250 years. How is it possible that the Bible was giving scientific fact thousands of years before scientists figured out? Here, ready, here we go. 2,500 years before scientists figured it out, Isaiah chapter 51 verse 6 talks about the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, this idea that things start and then they always regress and move downward. 2,500 years before scientists ever identified it. How is that possible if good men are simply trying to be helpful and the creator of the scientific principle Didn't give them help. Thousands of years. Thousands of years before anyone knew it. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 tells us that the earth is round. Now guys, think about this. When Magellan did his voyage and he's sailing out in 1500... Isaiah is almost 400, 500 years before Christ. This is 1,500 years after Christ. When Magellan sits out on his ship, you realize the men on his ship wanted to mutiny because they were convinced that when they got to the edge of the world, the ship was going to fall off because the world was flat. And here we are. Are you ready? Nearly 2,000 years before that, the Bible is telling you the earth is round. How did they know? 1,700 years. Before anybody, before Dalton, John Dalton, discovered the atom, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, talks about everything being particles and that God himself holds everything together. A description of atoms. 1,700 years before the scientists figured it out. 1,300 years uh, before anyone uh, proposes it, Job tells us, that the Earth is suspended in space. That we're just we're out there. It's free floating. It's uh, Job chapter twenty six verse seven. Here, here's the you want to you want to know what scientists thought about the Earth at the time Job was written. They believed the Earth was riding on the back of a turtle. So imagine Job saying, "No, no, no! The Earth is suspended in outer space," and they're all laughing. <laughs> we know about the turtle. Are you kidding me? How does Job know that if he's just a good man trying to be helpful? It's because the creator of the universe who suspended that earth in outer space whispered in his ear and told him what to write. So here's what I'm just going to say. If you're here and I get it, I get it, I get it. And you've been skeptical at the word of God. Look, look, I get that I haven't convinced you yet. I'm hoping I bothered you. I'm hoping that you won't commit intellectual suicide and simply just say, oh, I'm just going to believe what others have told. Investigate. Investigate. Come up, explain to me how good men trying to write good things would know this if God wasn't helping. Just just be true to your intellect and investigate. I'm going to suggest that those of us in the room who are Christians, you and I have got to go a step further. In this conversation. Because if this is the word of God. If we believe that. Then that changes everything for us. Matter of fact. Grab your Bibles real quick. Go with me to Second Peter. So go to the back of your Bible. And then work to the left. Don't go very fast. Because you're going to pass Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. This is what the Bible says about itself. Okay? Big deal. Here we go. This is what the Bible says about itself. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Above all... What does above all mean? This is the most important thing. Above all, you must understand... That no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. This isn't some guy named Fred going, well, you know, let me just write down some helpful thoughts. No guy, none of the authors of the Bible were doing this in their own strength, and their own independence. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it says, look, here's what the Bible says about itself. It says, these are literally the words of God. As a matter of fact, Timothy says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, the word of God is God-breathed. That as these men wrote, they could feel the breath of God and they heard his word. That's how they wrote it. It's God-breathed. Now, here's why that's a big deal. If the Bible claims to be the very words of God, you've only got a couple options. One is you don't believe that. Which means you believe the Bible is a lie. And I'm just saying to you today, if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is a lie, then shut it. Walk out of here and call it done. Because you have no business following a book with lies. It's not worth your life. The only other option you have is that the Bible just told you it's true. Which means that you and I would then be compelled to follow what it says. See, there, if you're a Christ fault, there is no middle ground on this topic. You, it's, either, it's either errant and broken, so let's walk away from our faith. Or it is the word of God and let's live our faith. Second piece. Grab your Bibles again. It's Matthew chapter 5. So again, if you closed them just now, go to the back of your Bible, work to the left. It's Matthew chapter 5. This one, this one is the biggest deal of all. Matthew chapter 5. Here's why. It's what Jesus said about the Bible. It's what the guy that you and I claim to follow said about the Bible. Which makes it a really big deal. Here's what Jesus said about Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. For I, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Here's what Jesus, think about this. Jesus just said, it is more likely that heaven and earth fade away than it is that anything in the word of God fade away. He says the smallest stroke of the pen, the actual original says jot and tittle, Englishize it. Jesus just said, it is more likely that heaven and earth would cease to exist than it is that the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I in the word of God would be found to be a mistake. That's what Jesus said. Okay, so let's go a little further because he's not done yet. 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, anyone who goes, you know what? I think that's cultural. That's not what God intended. No, 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 no. I don't need to believe that because I don't like that piece of, if I were God, I would have never said that. He who sets aside even the least of these and teaches others that way will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus look here, Jesus just said to you and me, this is the word of God. And you and I have no right to ignore or delete portions that we don't like. Which means, ready for this? This is why this one's big. Either, either Jesus lied to us when he said this was the word of God. Which if he did, means he's not Messiah. We're all done. Or, Jesus made a mistake. He thought it was the word of God, but he just didn't understand that it wasn't the word of God. Which means he's not the son of God, because the son of God doesn't make mistakes. Or, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He's the son of God come to earth, and he just told you what the Bible is. And this is why this is a big deal for you and I who claim to follow Jesus. If this is the word of God, how come you and I keep picking and choosing which portions to obey? How come you and I believe we can look and go, you know, come on, God, come on. You're really saying that about divorce. You're really saying that about giving. You're really saying that about my enemies. I... Pass. If this is the Word of God, and you and I are followers of Jesus, how is it possible that we selectively follow? And isn't it true that any person who would ever criticize us, any person who would say, hey, uh, you don't believe the Bible, and you and I go, no, no, I believe the Bible, then why don't you obey the Bible? And wouldn't their criticism be legitimate? Second thing, if this is the word of God, which means the creator of the universe, the creator of life, the one who designed it all, gave you and me an owner's manual and described how to live life, tell me when you get enough. And how come the majority of Christians in our world today are satisfied to go to church two or three Sundays a month? If you and I really believe this is the Word of God, wouldn't we be going after every bit of it as much as we could? And we would never be satisfied with a 30-minute sermon a couple Sundays a month. So here's here's what I'm just going to challenge you with. What if? What if you and I today decided to start doing daily devotions, to just spend a little bit of time every day in the Word of God? Because we said, I don't want to live a day in which I haven't allowed God to speak to me. And so we just read a chapter. That'll take you four minutes. You have to get it four minutes earlier. Read one chapter. If you haven't, do the book of Proverbs if you're not reading anywhere. It's got 31 chapters. There's about 30 or 31 days in a month. You'd get through it in a month. 30 days of starting your day in the Word of God because if you really believed it was the Word of God, you wouldn't want to live a day without the Word of God. And some of us in the room would say, I'm already doing that. right? Okay, then join a growth group join a women's ministry, join a men's ministry, join a small group, join the mine, join a small church. Cuz I'm just telling you an hour and a half a month isn't enough if that's the word of God. You and I need more. David said this. King David He said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. He also said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light on my path. And you get what he's saying in that moment? He's saying, Look, every decision I make, I put the light of your word on it so that I know exactly where to place my foot. Can you imagine if you and I did that for 30 days? That we did nothing that was unbiblical or unscriptural? 30 days, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we come to you, and we just have to be honest, Uh, we've neglected our Bibles. We may be one of the biblically most illiterate generations of all time, and yet we claim to follow you. And God, I I just pray for those in this room right now who maybe are on the front side of faith and haven't made a personal decision, God, I, I just pray that they're bothered enough by the discussion we've had today that they would go do the study. They would do the research to find out if what we claim today is true or not before they would throw the Word of God away. But I pray more for Christians today that we would be people of the Word, that we would not take for granted the fact that You gave us the directions for life, and that 30 minutes a couple Sundays a month is not enough of God's Word in our lives. And that we would just today up it. We would just step in to learning and obeying and following the Word of God even more. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.